Greetings, Alpha Seekers. Welcome to the Sunday edition of Alpha's Next. Now, normally what I do is uh, read the Tribune so you don't have to. A uh, couple of things I noticed in there. This is just working from memory. Uh, he had a discussion with a gentleman who's a lot smarter than I am and used to run, like, billion-dollar money funds, uh, private equity or whatever investment funds, and he is of the opinion that inflation is going to rear its ugly head again. I am on the other side of that trade, I told him, um, much to the dismay of the others on the call, but, um, you know, I think it's, everybody's entitled to their opinion, you know. So, uh, my hypothesis is that in a global economy with, uh, a huge labor supply, apparently infinite. You're not going to have the kind of wage price spiral we used to have in in the 70s and 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 the 60s. But you know, he's on the other side of that trade, and he's a lot smarter and more credentialed and experienced than me. So I saw something today that would kind of support his hypothesis, which is that you've seen car prices. Uh, inflate by about uh, probably seven eight percent, which is pretty big in one year. And the reason for that is that there's a supply issue uh, because the the car makers shut down during the crisis for a couple of months, and there's also been an increase in demand simultaneously. So it's very simple. You know, I didn't do that well in economics, but. Supply-demand curve is a very simple thing. Uh, when there's more demand than supply, <clears throat> the curve moves up at a price point to match those two uh, two elements. So, you know, at some point, you, your price goes up to the point where people no longer want that good or service at that price, and that's the equilibrium point. So that's how markets work. And then what tends to happen is uh, that price attracts people making more cars, in this case, and the supply increases to meet the demand, and the price goes down. That's how the free market works. So the, the free market has its own invisible hand that creates... Uh, uh, price stability, if you will. It attracts more people, like, like masks, right? You couldn't get a mask for uh, weeks, at least, after the, uh, after the virus hit. And now, you can find masks all over. Not necessarily the right kind or the highest quality, but certainly something that looks like a mask. Uh, and hand sanitizer, you couldn't get that. You couldn't get toilet paper. Well, when, when the market sees an opportunity to profit, then people start getting in the toilet paper business. You know, nobody likes to make toilet paper. It's not fun. But we all do a lot of things that aren't fun so we can make money. And so the market will uh, bring the equilibrium point, which is price, down um, to a level where ultimately there's too much supply and it becomes unprofitable to make it, and then people stop making it. And the, so that equilibrium price point keeps moving up and down to balance supply with demand. 
Now, those who wish to impose price controls don't believe that. But they don't like the outcome of that. So they wish to uh, take a visible hand, and they seek to be smarter than the invisible hand of the marketplace. And that's where you get distortions in a free market. And that's probably where we're heading in the... Uh, in the grand scheme, and that's also why the best-intentioned efforts to fix what's considered to be a broken market tend to be washed up upon the rocks of human imperfection. So, um, for example, in the pharmaceutical market or the healthcare market, you know, people don't like the outcome when. Uh, the demand for health care exceeds the supply, so they come up with mechanisms to fix it, third-party payment and such. And thus, they take the price sensitivity out of the market, and that creates enormous price inflation. I want, you know, let's say you had third-party payment for cars. Well, I want to get a Rolls. I want to get a, a Maybach or whatever. I want to get a Porsche. I don't want to get a, a Yugo or, a, you know, pick your favorite cheap car. So uh, everybody wants a Cadillac. It used to be a Cadillac care, you know, for a Volkswagen budget. Now, you know, probably Tesla care. And uh, the the providers can charge basically not as much as they want, but as much as the third-party payer will pay, whereas... If you were in a purely free market, you know, I think the price of healthcare would come down 80 or 90 percent. Nobody's going to get an $1,100 x ray. They're just going to say, eh, I'll just take my chances. So, therefore, if you were going to be in the x ray business, you would have to get it down to a level that people will pay, like 100 bucks. I mean, I went to uh, Northwestern to get an x ray for my wife, and they wanted 1100 bucks. And I told them, you know, pound sand. And shopped around and got one for a hundred bucks from an imaging center, just as good quality, according to her doctor. So, you know, if you have price competition and in, 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 in everything, and you let supply and demand balance themselves using price as a mechanism, then you know that's the way the free market works. The minute you try to shield people from the pain of that process, then you create. Uh, inflationary forces. And that's part of what went on in the 70s and the 60s, you know, when you had more unions, because unions artificially raised the price of labor. And a lot of people think that's great, but, uh, and then globalization was just the final, the final uh, unleashing of free market, because now you're competing with people all over the world, where if they make a dollar, I mean, they can live on it for a week. So uh, that's why I've thought in my own mind, at least, that inflation is very unlikely. And the Fed has been trying to push inflation unsuccessfully since 2008. And they can't even get it over 2%. And I think it's because of globalization and a combination of globalization as well as technological advancement. The point I always make or the illustration I use is that in 1900, 50%, one out of every two people in the country was engaged in agriculture to feed the country. Now, 1% are. 
I read an article in the Tribune today about coal mining. It used to be, and Illinois is a big coal producer, which, you know, I guess I knew at one time, but you tend to forget. It's all southern Illinois. And it used to be a big source of jobs, 55,000 people at the peak uh, of the coal industry employment uh, market worked in coal mining. Now, a 1,000 people work in that. So it's the same sort of uh, reduction in labor based on mechanization and automation and technological advancement. So the point of this article was, you know, uh, J.B. Pritzker's like Mr. Green jeans, and here he is uh, approving coal mining that even Rauner didn't approve, you know, so they're kind of calling him out on the front page of the trip, by the way. So, uh, you know, talk about hypocrisy. But uh, the, the point on the labor front is that it used to be a 55000 employee decision and you know then you take the first and second derivatives of that the family members and the grocery stores that feed the miners and all that and it's a pretty good chunk of labor maybe three or four hundred thousand people are involved now you get a thousand people so it's a much easier political decision to shut it down i presume the state makes some money from taxing the companies but that's another argument against corporate taxes frankly because if the state is indifferent to companies as a result of their direct tax payments, that makes it a lot easier for them to exercise the will of the people. I suppose that's an argument for corporate taxes to a certain extent, too, if you're a believer in, in business, but which I am. But anyway, is what it is. So that's that. Um, the other thing I wanted to cover today is to wrap up yesterday's talk regarding alternative investments and uh, I think what my new challenge in writing this article is I'm just tempted to plagiarize this whole article (laughs) that I was thinking of you know just kind of being inspired by as it were so let me see if I can pull that baby up here I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that, frankly. It's hard to do that on my phone. But um, let me tell you what I remember about it, Um, which is that, yeah, which is that um, some of the best alternative investments these days are real estate um, some, some kind of private instrument. It's not a REIT, necessarily. Uh, Louis decided to chime in on the podcast. we got to get him where he wants to be, or he'll just bark. Bark his fool head off. So, uh, okay, thank you, Louis, for cooperating with the production here. You know, we've got a very low-rent studio, which is my phone. So, uh, in any event, though, what these uh, instruments do is uh, take private investors' money and go out and buy property. So it's a very passive way of investing in real estate. And they can go out and buy single-family homes. And uh, we actually interviewed somebody 
uh, whose name escapes me. You got a lousy memory for names. Uh, on Alpha's neck. So go out there and look for that video interview. That's our first and only, so far at least, video interview. And uh, it was a Zoomer. I'm a boomer Zoomer. And, yeah, it went pretty well because I had somebody helping me. But uh, that's what he does, basically. He raises money and he invests in property and you get an income stream. And it's like a cash flow investment, basically. But I think it also appreciates. So this guy feels that uh, that's the best investment at this point. And it's easier than buying the damn things yourself and rehabbing them. We got a guy across the street rehabbing a two flat, I guess. And oh my God, every day they take out one of those huge dumpsters of stuff. It's a gut rehab. And you got to have a lot of guts to do gut rehabs, I'll tell you that, man. I mean, they started working on this the day after the thing closed, and it looks like they have a ton of work ahead of them. Um, so. so anyway, that's about it on, uh, on the alternative investment or the passive income. I'm going to, I don't know, I may just post a link to this guy's article, because I don't know if I can improve upon it, to be honest with you. But we'll see. Uh, meeting with my partner today, which I have to reschedule, actually. Because the Bear Gang got moved. And there was also a great article, by the way, in the Tribune about Nick Foles. And Nick Foles says you need to look at challenges as uh, kind of opportunities to get better, which is a good way of looking at it. You know, But I think he's definitely an upgrade over uh, Trubisky. I think the Trubisky era is over. So now we will pivot to one of my favorite uh, weekly briefings, which is um, the Seeking Alpha Week in Review. So I will focus a little bit on the biotech side of it. Because uh, what they basically do is point out catalysts that are going to happen with individual stocks. So there's a company I never heard of called Inventiva SA. And uh, it trades for 12 bucks a share. IPO'd about six months ago. It's gone up pretty well. Looks like. Yeah, let's look at it over a longer period of time. Yeah. It's been up and down, you know. It opened at 14, now it's 12. So probably one of those, I don't know anything about it, but it is, I do know it's a cancer oncology company. So in any event, their share lockup is ending. So you may see uh, that drop this week. And if you go out and research it, and it's uh, invented the SACA, NASDAQ, symbol I, Idaho, V, Victor, A, Alpha, uh, 25% of the shares are freeing up. Actually, on my birthday, October 8th. So uh, usually that means that you're going to get a drop in the stock as people go out and sell it after the lockup. So that might be an opportunity to get in if you like what you see when you research the company. Uh, I can't speak to that. Another company going uh, IPO or pricing its IPO on October 7th Zeo Biologics, Symbol, Alpha, Zeta, 
Yankee, Omaha, A-Z-Y-L. So, don't know a thing about that either, but just drawing your attention to it. Uh, here's another one. Myra, GTX, NASDAQ, Major Golf Tango X-Ray, MGTX, will present nine months results from ongoing phase one, two of a drug for vision loss. And that's at a meeting called Uratina 2020. Uh, shares rose sharply in June when they presented um, data on this drug. Also, Spring Bank. These are all companies I never heard of. Spring Bank Pharmaceuticals, symbol SBPH. That's Sierra, Bravo, Paul, Hero. They've got an immunotherapeutic uh, drug in phase 1A, 1B. And that's at the 7th Immunotherapy of Cancer Conference. Alexion uh, got a presentation. And it's Pipe. And uh, there's a October 11th action due on their new formulation of Ultomiris. I don't know what that is, but it's an infusion drug, so it's just going to shorten the time it takes to infuse it. Let's, uh, I'm reading this for the first time as I speak. A lot of tech stuff in here. Beyond Meat, going to Walmart. That symbol BYND, I like it. I'm waiting for Impossible Foods because I am not a meat eater anymore. And uh, Impossible Burgers are a lot better than the Beyond Meat equivalent, I can tell you personally. Uh, and that stock is uh, doing quite well. So, it might be a momentum play, but I don't know. Let's see what else we got here. I may be missing some of these because I'm only talking about the ones I can see are clearly biotech because that's what we're focusing on. Let's see. A lot of stuff about cannabis. I'm not there. I think that private market for cannabis is a lot more resilient. It's a lower price. It's got home delivery. <laughs> yeah. These drug dealers aren't going to just fold up shop because they're state franchise stores. So I think there's a huge oversupply. <clears throat> huge oversupply in that market. A lot of these cannabis stocks have really cratered. So, uh, I guess that's about it for today. That's 20 minutes. I put in my 20. Phone today. So, uh, live long, prosper. Uh, stay positive. And uh, we will uh, try to talk to you again tomorrow. Take care.